Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and you're listening to The History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I think before I go into part two of my deep dive into San Francisco and the flu pandemic of 1918, I need to go over something with the vast majority of some of you that has a lot to do with that. So please, please, please do not skip this episode. With the current pandemic, as with 1918, you notice a reluctance to wear masks and to essentially social distance this time around. Although people did know instinctively, in a way, in a weird way, even though there was less science then than there is now, by a long shot. People did know, in a very, very strange way, that we needed to social distance. Okay, so one of the things you notice again and again, one of the weird parallels between now and 1918, is that just like now, in 1918, a whole lot of people thought it was basically tyrannical to wear a mask. Yes, there were people that wore masks in 1918, and I'll bet you anything that a lot of us are related somewhere down the line to somebody who did wear a mask. Because even though the mask in 1918 did not work, because it was made of gauze, and gauze does not stop the virus that caused the Spanish flu, the social distancing may well have done that. The accompanying social distancing may well have done that. Of course, in 1918, effectively, people lived a more socially distant lifestyle to boot, so maybe that had something to do with it. That is to say that they were already socially distancing because they, a lot of these people were living on farms or they were farm-adjacent. There was also not nearly as many people then as there were in 1918, and people lived in a much more spread-out situation because not nearly as many Americans were in urban centers or, you know, in what we today would call suburban centers. They were either in very, very small towns mostly or they were isolated on farms. However, I feel like I need to issue a caveat here. And that caveat is that a whole lot of Americans essentially existed outside of the gaze of the state. Which is to say that an entire huge group of Americans, of basically all races, mostly of the lower class, did not really interface in any meaningful official way with authorities. Meaning that it would have been easier for them to hide in official paperwork in the day. This is most likely the reason behind the fact that there were a whole lot of stories on an anecdotal level of towns literally devoid of working age people around the time of the 1918 pandemic. It is also worth remembering that for an awful lot of people, they were very suspicious of science and medicine. Remember that most doctors were not medically trained by modern standards, even a little bit. Most doctors really didn't even have a, really an understanding of biology in this country at the time of the 1918 flu epidemic. 
the notion that one needed to have biological training as a doctor only really came in in 1900, meaning that there were an awful lot of doctors that didn't have that at all. And you also need to understand that biological training didn't really happen in a lot of medical schools at all. Outside observers would long notice that though they were founded within a scientific republic, most of the actual American people were very suspicious of science and scientific knowledge. Country churches would routinely rail against the advances from the cities of science and culture. It was all seen as sort of this un-American anathema that went against the American spirit and freedom, which they believed America was uniquely qualified in. It is also worth remembering that the South, the American South, was still reeling from the Civil War, which didn't really recover from the Civil War until World War II. So this meant that there was an entire huge region of the country which was lagging behind developmentally, both economically, scientifically, and culturally, which would give the virus a field day in later years. Here's another thought that I have in doing the Spanish flu that I haven't exactly read in any of the research, but it's a thought that I have. And the thought is that a lot of this ignorance, for lack of a better word, exists basically at the high level. In other words, there was a group, a set of knowledge, say, that existed basically that they thought was fit for either general consumption or polite consumption. And there was another, I guess, more earthy or practical knowledge which basically went unsaid by the doctors. And the reason I bring that up is because anybody who lives in the South, anybody who grew up in the South, would know that the fact that these doctors thought that humans that is, humans of a different race, so black humans and white humans specifically, were separate biological beings, anybody would know that that is basically bunk. Because here's the thing, there's plenty of cases of white masters deliberately impregnating black slaves to make other black slaves. That runs through families in stories in both black and white in the South. So that makes me wonder if some of what I'm reading in these letters and diaries was essentially fit for polite society and not maybe the earthy realities of what people might have understood either colloquially or maybe in some cases even scientifically. The reason I bring that up into a podcast about the Spanish flu is that essentially the whole of history is, is dominated by stories of rape and people deliberately knowing that other people make human babies. So to me, the idea that doctors and even society didn't know that we were all in fact one species is a little bit strange. And also there is a lot of prevalence throughout time that there was a high and basically a low, although I hesitate to call it that, 
but a high and a low bar for knowledge or things that you would tell the common folk that you wouldn't necessarily tell, you know, the, the people in the know, so to say. And here again, we need to understand that in the 19th century, which in a lot of ways, psychologically, 1918 was still in the 19th century. This podcast has shown me that, that in a lot of ways in the 19th century, basically academic thought and things like that was only really done by the upper crust for the benefit of the upper crust. So possibly this was in line with 19th century thinking. 19th century thinking was very prevalent during this time. In fact, you might say that arguably it was both World War I as well as the Spanish flu that essentially forced 19th century thinking to go out of fashion because for the first time the leaders could actually see that the Industrial Revolution, in addition to being politically disruptive, the Spanish flu could also be virologically disruptive as well. This meant that people had to rethink society in a way that we find, basically we take it completely for granted. This is essentially why so many people believe that the Spanish flu did not change anything, as I've said before, because we are actually living in the changes today. However, there is a key similarity that other people, that is both European as well as other outsiders have always noted about America. We call it, that is Americans, we call it freedom on a colloquial level. But essentially what it is, is this basically a default, if you will, for a whole lot of people in this country to essentially disobey authority. Some experts or cultural observers that are from outside this country and indeed inside this country have come to see that essentially because we were founded by not, basically not wanting the king to run our lives. So what we tend to do in a very negative way or non-positive way, I suppose, is we tend to substitute authorities, specifically authorities we don't like, that have news we don't like, as the king, it's very common in today's society to think this is a modern contrivance. But in fact, one has only to study American history to realize that actually, no, this is actually very, very common indeed. And one can simply find many, many, many examples of this throughout American history. And the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 is absolutely no exception. As a matter of fact, modern doctors and virologists and epidemiologists and really just people who study the Spanish flu have long theorized that the Spanish flu was very, very, very deadly. And had we had our modern density with our modern cities and our modern, you know, the modern take on the Industrial Revolution and the con internal combustion engine, etc. and so on, the Spanish flu would have been far, far more deadly than it was today. And also, I think we need to understand one of the reasons why people today, that is, people who study the Spanish flu, be they historians or doctors or really just anybody, 
who even has an interest in the Spanish flu. One thing that all of us have to understand is that when you combine the fact that a lot of people in 1918 were, were living in relatively rural situations relative to today, and also the fact that, honestly, the racism, for lack of a better word, when you study 1918, you have to come away with the fact, I mean, you absolutely have to come away with the fact that we were just far more racist as a culture in 1918 than we are today. But when you combine this stuff together with what the news diet in 1918 was, we might not know how many people died of the Spanish flu. And when I say news diet, I've been saying that phrase a lot. I need to, underst- need to make you guys understand something. And that is that it wasn't at all like today where I can punch up the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Boston Globe or even my local paper. Sometimes I venture off the sports section in my local paper. And sometimes I read a paper in Canada, all the way up in Canada. It wasn't like that at all. And I know older folks know that. But a lot of younger folks don't. But the other thing a lot of people don't understand is the lo- the level of the local news to the local person. When you read a paper in a small town in 1918, a lot of the stories in that paper in 1918 had to do with so-and-so went to so-and-so's house. And if you want to see so-and-so, stop on by, and they'll be there between this day and that day. And there's a lot of stories about somebody brought a casserole and somebody did this and you know, the farmer's report and the fairs, et cetera, and so on. But there's not a lot of what we would call today hard news. And some of that might have been by design. In fact, probably a lot of that was by design. And the, what I mean by that is maybe the town elites did not want the given people to understand the criminal element or the less desirable elements of their town. And this brings out another thing, is that in our society today, we're confronted with a 24-hour news cycle. Now, the 24-hour news cycle, so we like to believe, is about, you know, comes around about the time of CNN, when Ted Turner figured out that, you know, humans like to watch news 24-7. Ted Turner not only invented the 24-hour news cycle, he also changed what the news was. And then Rupert Murdoch took that model a little bit further, and he changed it again to where now a lot of what the news is, be it MSNBC, CNN, or whomever you choose to, whichever channel you choose to watch, is essentially for a whole lot of people. Your opinions oftentimes shouted back to you. Now, why am I talking about that in a podcast about the Spanish flu? Because the news in 1918 was simply not the news. You were not reading in 1918 the news of your town in the newspaper. And that is essential. That is essential to understand that things could happen 
beyond the surveillance of your town's newspaper that sometimes was deliberate. And why am I bringing that up? Because I think it is important to understand how these flu deaths were arrived at, how the totals were arrived at. They were arrived at by insurance claims primarily, and then later death reports. And here's the other part. Here's the other fact. Because this is what they call a loose culture, that is because we're pretty much an independent-spirited culture, families in 1918 could exist well beyond the the view of authorities of any stripe, be they governmental or private or whatever, to, in 1918 than they could today by far. Indeed, there were many families that came to America specifically to get away from the viewing of authorities. And this was a feeling that was held over in 1918 by the majority of especially white Americans, especially white Protestant Americans, many of whom came to the U.S. to practice their specific version of religious freedom. Alexis de Tocqueville, an early observer from Europe on America, observed quite famously that the sheer size of the landmass of what was then the United States and then later to be North America could act as a safety valve of the American person, that is, the common American person against authority. He praised how fertile the land was and saw the land's fertility as the chief means of basically income and survival of the American people. This was the prevailing thought well into the 20th century which meant that a lot of people deliberately set up their lives to exist beyond the view of authorities. So when you have an authority coming to tell you things like wear a mask, etc., it's not just an ignorance or however truthful or well-meaning that ignorance is or however honest it is. It's that because you're separated from the authorities, you don't have the prevailing thoughts as much on what the prevailing thoughts about disease and the Spanish flu were. Why am I bringing this up before I talk again about San Francisco in my second part of the deep dive into San Francisco and the Spanish flu? Because, ladies and gentlemen, the twist of what happened in San Francisco during the Spanish flu was very sudden. And also, I think it's important to understand why San Francisco, which was then just shaking off the vestiges of being a Wild West town, was hit as hard as it was by the Spanish flu in the key areas that it was. But it wasn't hit nearly as hard as East Coast cities. But it was hit in very key areas in the city which had a broad umbrella of impacts on the health of San Franciscans in general, meaning that there were a lot of second, basically secondary deaths from the flu. In other words, deaths not of the flu itself, but deaths because somebody got the flu. As I've said also in part one of this deep dive into San Francisco, San Francisco is also a very interesting case where researchers honestly don't know how many people died of the flu 
because there were so many people, specifically minorities. And remember, San Francisco was an early multicultural city in America. But there were so many people who were simply reported missing from work, who really didn't have outside connections within the mainland of America, so it's probably likely that they somehow died of the flu or something else and simply were never heard of again. To me, this is a very, very haunting reminder of, of what the flu really was and how, honestly, really, we might never know how many people actually died of the 1918 flu. And I really think, I almost feel like I have a responsibility, especially with the pandemic that we have today, of, of telling people that. You know, we're used to, in, in our time now, we are used to knowing things. We are used to finding things out and learning things. And some things in this world simply are not knowable. And I'm really becoming more and more convinced that the Spanish flu deaths, that is the total number of Spanish flu deaths, really are simply not a knowable thing. And maybe we need to be okay with the current disease, that is COVID-19. We might never know how many people actually died of this thing. But anyway, I wanted to give you this deep dive into San Francisco for those reasons. But I wanted to give you this episode so I could explain to you kind of what was going on in San Francisco, that it was essentially still psychologically a 19th century town, even in the 20th century, among the elite. And they simply were not capable or equipped to deal with the challenges of the 1918 flu, which might have well been one of the reasons the 20th century ended up like it was as far as people more willing to listen to experts and, you know, science became more and more prized. I really think that one of the lessons of the 1918 flu was that medicine, specifically modern medicine, was very, very crucial in the lives of Americans. Anyway, thank you, and I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. Um, the music you're about to hear is that of Andrew Vickery, who I've said before, is a close friend of mine and has been for years. Bye-bye.